This Thursday, September 30th, is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And it's a fitting date because it has long been Orange Shirt Day in recognition of Every Child Matters. The Day for Truth and Reconciliation is the result of the discovery of more than 1,000 graves of Indigenous children at residential schools, and it's coupled with the report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. The discovery of these graves really brought it home, I think, for Canadians who knew, many of us knew about residential schools, but it wasn't really on our radar because it didn't affect our lives. Dr. Rennie Linklater is here to talk to me today, and Rennie is the Senior Director of the Shkabi Makwa Program for Indigenous Mental Health at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. She is also from Rainy River First Nations. Her parents and grandparents were sent to residential schools, so she's experienced the trauma that has been passed down to her through the generations. Hi, Rennie. Do you think that it took something beyond everyone's imagination to get Canadians' attention, and has it got us looking at at the the way indigenous people have been treated through the centuries um it's in a lasting way i guess is this going to last or are we going to say oh you know what let's move on and let's go back to our preconceived notions i think when you know canada puts forward these um really important priorities. And so, you know, one, we're seeing that there has been this um, acknowledgement that the September 30th will now be the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And what's interesting about September 30th is that for many years, um, uh, we've been running campaigns across the country uh, about Every Child Matters. And many will be familiar with orange shirts and the story behind, um, you know, how that uh, movement came to be. And I think you know, the significance of the discoveries of the children this year was so shocking. Um, it was shocking for us as uh, Indigenous peoples, and it was also shocking for Canadians right across the country. And, you know, there was lots of kind of conversations like, you know, how could this happen? And, and perhaps, you know, there was illnesses or, you know, flus or sicknesses that caused this. And, and I know when I put some thought to this and in conversations that I was having with others, um, I really realized that had that been the case, then our government would have known. They would have already known where these graves were. So unfortunately, um, that really took place and it was really hidden. And so this was news that hit us um, in a very significant way. And the response, um, I would say, not only from our communities, but particularly for those that had experienced residential schools, either themselves, um, you know, or children, like in my case, my mother went to residential school and so did both of my grandparents. And um, when I think of the grief um, and, you know, even reading some um, of my relatives' commentaries that they felt that they were the lucky ones, that they now survived um, because many of these children didn't. And so when I think of that impact um, and, you know, what, and also what happens in our communities too, is we have Indigenous service providers right across the country that are then um, really positioned to be helpers and supports. But if they themselves have been impacted 
by the Indian residential school system, then, you know, there's a lot of, um, I would say stress uh, and trauma response that's happening. And very sadly, we know that um, there has been frontline workers that have died by suicide recently in response to finding those graves. So I think that um, that's something that we, we need to pay attention to um, you know, completely. But I'm also thinking about uh, how this is impacting non-Indigenous people and whether they're general Canadians um, or whether they're healthcare professionals. And I know that myself and my colleagues at KMH, um, you know, we kind of intersect in these places of care. And so, you know, we know that the responders, whether they're uh, non-Indigenous responders on distress lines um, or Indigenous responders really need the appropriate resources to, to help us, to help everyone to kind of get through um, this situation. There's so many things to understand about uh, Indigenous health, whether it's physical health, mental health, uh, addiction. Uh, for us to, to, as Western people, to understand why it's so different. And so uh, can we talk just a little bit, because you are third generation, and I've read a lot about how this generational passing down of experience has led to mental health issues in today's generation as well as addiction issues. Why is it that this comes down through generations and is still affecting younger Indigenous people and Indigenous people who, who children and, and, and uh, teenagers and young adults who have no experience themselves, no life experience themselves with a residential school? I think this is, you know, what's so important to recognize here is the intention behind the residential schools. And, you know, we, we know that we have these quotes from Duncan Campbell Scott about that those schools were really intended to kill the Indian and the child. Um, and on top of that, uh, because there was such um, efforts made to obtain access to uh, Indigenous lands and resources, these schools were really aimed at fragmenting um, and damaging our families and communities to a place where we couldn't be able to sustain ourselves on the land that we've lived for thousands and thousands of years. And I think that, you know, the very fact that, um, that we were colonized, that governments came to this land and set up institutions, created legislation, and then ruled over us and oppressed us, um, you know, through those processes. So I think, you know, when we think about um, those intentions and, uh, and then understanding the multi-generational impacts of, um, you know, what, what unfolds because of that, what unfolds, you know, with my, both of my grandparents um, attending residential school and then my mom attending residential school. So here in my family, we had two generations where they were removed as children from their families and communities and put in these institutions and not taught the family skills, not being in relationship with their mother and their father and their grandparents and their aunties and uncles and extended family. And that um, attack on our families, um, I think when we think about the multi-generational trauma, it's really, um, trauma is really about responding to a wound, responding to an injury. And so that's why we see this uh, multi-generational impact um, really unfold because, you know, even for the person that didn't go to residential school, but if their parent went to residential school, if their grandparent went to residential school, then they were subjected to, um, you know, structures and, you know, 
weren't, they were often harmed for speaking their language. There was no access to culture. There was no way to really develop a really strong indigenous identity. And so, you know, for that person um, to be in a family that, you know, chances are their parent or their grandparents were um, assaulted and abused. And we know there's a cycle around abuse as well. So when we have families that haven't necessarily had those opportunities to really heal together and to really think through what are the ways that, um, that they can move through the trauma of their own family to be able to get um, to a safer place, I would say, and a healthier place within our family systems. You're sort of in limbo because your family and the elders have not been able to, who went to residential schools have not been able to share the traditions and the traditional way of life, uh, but at the same time, you're being asked to take part in uh, a culture, the Western culture, that does not apply to you. So that kind of takes us to the 60s scoop. And I want to talk about that just for a second, because I was in elementary school in Toronto when the 60s scoop was happening. I did not know this term, 60s scoop, until many years later. And I had an experience with that where there was a family who lived near me and they adopted two young, at the time, Indian boys, and they were twins. And one of the twins adapted quite well to Western life and went through school and went to university and the other twin did not. My understanding is he got into drugs and I don't know if he was ever able to bring his life back to that more traditional way where he could actually live. And we referred to people, uh, Indigenous people at the time, as drunken Indians. And I think that concept was very strong across the board. But we created that. Right. Western culture created. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, look at what we know about substance use now. You know, in so many ways, people are managing their distress responses, you know, their trauma backgrounds, the abuses that they have experienced in life. There's the two reports, the Truth and Reconciliation Report and Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women. Those were both done. It doesn't, not very many of if recommendations, if any, were followed through on. And so there was a great deal of hurt still. Uh, in the Indigenous community. Yeah, you said you were going to study this. We thought you understood and you meant something, but I don't think that you did. And if I go back to uh, finding the the bodies of the children at the residential schools and the national uh, statutory holiday on Thursday, do you think that that's going to bring it together and that these recommendations will now be understood? by Canadians and that governments will say, okay, you know what? Wow, we need to act on this. This isn't lip service. I, I actually think that those uh, types of reports and initiative are critically important because what it does is it engages all of us um, into this dialogue, um, you know, and thinking through why is it that this needs to come to the forefront? And, you know, particularly around uh, the murdered and missing Indigenous uh, women and girls and Two-Spirit peoples, when, um, you know, as that movement continues uh, to really identify, you know, thousands of uh, women and girls who, uh, you know, they go missing and they're not investigated. You know, well, how, how is that? And I still see things represented in the media, 
um, you know, where it might be, um, you know, a Caucasian person, um, you know, missing or, or subject to, um, you know, a certain situation that I know if it was an Indigenous person, it wouldn't be reported yeah, right? So, you know, we need to ask ourselves, um, you know, why was there such a disregard and lack of value uh, for Indigenous women? And, you know, there are so many, um, you know, of us feel that there is a type of a double oppression that we experience. Um, you know, not only do we get oppressed by society at large, um, but because of the changes, um, you know, that happened throughout colonization, uh, there's a lot of oppression and abuse that happens within our own communities as well. And um, that's that cyclical effect, really, that's, um, that stems, that's rooted in colonization that you, you've identified it, that that was a created situation. Um, and that, you know, for those attitudes that, you know, um, many people had and, and still have, you know, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on, around the drunken Indian or these stereotypes, um, I think now people are coming to this place where they have a different lens, they're developing a different understanding and a different analysis about what that person's um, life might have been like. And I remember speaking 20 years ago in graduate classes at University of Toronto around some of these impacts. And, uh, you know, these were people who were very well educated and um, they were very, very quiet. And they were very teary and some would approach me after class and say, I am so sorry. I cannot believe that that has happened in this country. I cannot believe that the church played that role. The church is supposed to be here to protect us and to really guide us to be good, kind human beings. And, and, and I know, um, you know, the Canadian education system has done no one any favors terms of you know really kind of helping to have a kind of a collective responsibility and acknowledgement uh, of really what's taken place but we're getting there we're getting there and we're getting there because there's these movements um, the truth and reconciliation commission was incredibly important as are all the calls to action and I would say they do make a difference you know I'm a I work in the hospital system and we know one of the calls um, number 66 calls on those in positions that can really bring forward traditional healing practices um, and offer them to Aboriginal patients you know, if they should seek out that kind of care. And, you know, so I think that um, this, it's a real opportunity um, for us to hold, to grab on to these priorities that our country is finally setting for us. Um, we see mainstream school boards uh, right across the country picking up the Every Child Matters campaign and, and educating, educating in the classroom, which then ends up educating in the households around the kitchen tables. And I think that's how change begins. Now, if we talk about healthcare and the and the different healthcare needs, so is, this takes us back to the uh, Indigenous traditional way of healing and and living and understanding the world in the way I might understand the world. I know that the level of addiction and mental illness um, in Indigenous communities is much higher than it is in the general population. And part of that, I think, is the isolation and the, the lack of doctors and nurses and so on. But even if they were there, they're still not able to heal the people in the way that they need to be healed in their in their traditional way of life 
what is uh, indigenous medicine and specifically for for mental illness and addiction that is is so different and the needs so different for indigenous people? I think part of what um, helps to kind of bring focus to that is really looking at uh, well-being. And so if we're taking a strengths-based um, approach to wellness, then we're going to look at the strengths um, of what First Nations Inuit people um, may have within their cultures, which help them um, holistically, you know, have very strong spirits, you know, have um, emotions that they're able to regulate, you know, and have enough stimulation, you know, in their minds and have healthy physical bodies. And much of that wellness is really rooted in traditional ways of life, um, in culture. And uh, so your example about um, the whale blubber, I think, I mean, that's so interesting because, um, you know, for an Inuit person, um, that would be really an important, um, you know, aspect to participate in their life because it's so connected to their culture. And it's something that their people have done for thousands and thousands of years. And it helps them feel strong as an Inuit person, knowing that, you know, as they walk forward, um, they're carrying some of those practices, traditions, and they haven't lost, right? And, and I know my own experience as a First Nations person, because I was um, in the system um, for 19 years of my life and then went back to my community um, as a, a teenager, an older teenager. Um, I've, I had that experience of growing up, um, but I was then in my 20s and 30s um, as I was learning about ceremonies and culture. And, um, and as I was going through that process, it was like I was putting medicine in my body. It was, I was developing skills to be able to walk through life to really better understand um, you know, the way to see the world, but also my place in it. And when I look at the extensive, um, you know, substance use and mental health issues, um, part of that is still in such a crisis situation because there haven't been um, appropriate interventions. And, and I'm going to say culturally relevant interventions to really be able to support um, Indigenous people through these healing processes. And so, for example, um, you know, when we think maybe about, you know, remote communities in the province where we live in, in Ontario, uh, you know, there's kind of hard evidence out there that all of us could be thinking through about why there might be some states of emergencies um, up in some of those remote communities. And we don't have to look far to recognize that there was a pedophile, Ralph Rowe, who you know worked for the Boy Scouts. There's a, a film made about him and the impacts. And he had hundreds of victims, hundreds of victims um, that he impacted. And as we know, the cycle of sexual abuse often unfolds. Um, and not for everyone, fortunately, but for some people that have been abused, they end up reenacting that abuse out on other people. And so those cycles, um, unfortunately, haven't been interrupted to the extent that they need to be. And, um, and I think that, that there's some real opportunities there to work with communities to develop strategies um, around some of these safeties, because now we're seeing, um, you know, the grandchildren uh, of those original people, you know, that were victims of Ralph Rowe now dying by suicide. And I mean children, I mean eight, nine, 10 year old children. And so people have to really think, you know, how is it that these young children um, are so helpless, and so at a loss that they give up their lives? And so you're part of the Shkabe Makwa Center at CAMH, which was launched, I think, created and, and opened 
last fall, and it is based on traditional medicine. So last um, last fall, we launched Gave Makwa as one of um, the newer, newer centers of innovation at KMH. And this is a really exciting opportunity, actually, to really have um, you know, an ability to drive culturally relevant system initiatives um, and think about ways that, you know, we can address health equity, we can support community wellness, but also, um, you know, looking to transform health outcomes. Um, we're involved in a lot of different research um, with our communities and community-based research where we're literally um, in First Nation communities you know, developing mental wellness strategies um, or, you know, other curriculum that um, you know, we can adapt to be able to bring out um, and to support some of the development pieces. But one of the, um, I would say, most critical um, places that we're at in this time is that there is a real need to start thinking through how can we develop innovative healing models that really harmonize uh, traditional model, uh, traditional knowledge and medical expertise. And being at CAMH, um, you know, we, for many years actually, um, you know, we've been offering cultural services, but I would say that we're, we're still thinking through how do we, how do we bring these in more? Um, and for actually for just over 20 years, uh, KMH um, has had Aboriginal services. So there's always been a clinical team um, at KMH with therapists and with the healer supporting patient care. And in 2016, we opened up our ceremony grounds and we have medicine gardens, we have sacred fires and we have a sweat lodge. And this, um, you know, the sweat lodge is now part of care planning. And uh, so that's a really important way that we, we think through bringing together um, these healing practices. And, and, and they're also blended approaches, you know, and I love the story that we had one client that wanted his psychiatrist who was not Indigenous um, to also come in the sweat lodge um, with him along with the conductor and the social worker. And the uh, psychiatrist was very open to that experience. And, and I think about that um, because what becomes really important in terms of providing care, especially within a hospital system, because we cannot um, ignore the extensive racism and discrimination that has not only happened in society, um, but has happened in our very hospital system. And, you know, so when we, um, when we have these types of cultural services and we're able to bring people to a lodge or bring forward medicines, what it does is that helps to create some spiritual and psychological safety. And we know that those with, um, you know, histories of trauma uh, often don't feel safe. You know, like, like that is the difficulty of being in the world when you've been injured. And so this is a real opportunity to, to wrap people um, around with medicine and to engage them in a healing plan um, that will really uh, be able to sustain their well-being. Rennie, thanks so much for talking to me today. We could go on and on and on because there are so many uh, questions that I could ask. But I think that you've explained really well what's going on at CAMH. And, and we, we know that CAMH does um, amazing research and treatment in so many different areas. But uh, to, to hear about the connection between traditional he healing and, and medicine is really a positive and uh, I wish you great success going forward. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Janice. It's been a pleasure to be on your show today.